You are the foundation of your family. You are the firm footing they build their lives on. You carry a glorious burden and you never dream of laying it down. You carry it with joy and gratitude. You show up even when you don't feel like it. You lead, serve, love, and protect. You are a father. This is the Dad Work Podcast, where men are forged into elite husbands and fathers by learning what it takes to become harder to kill, easier to love, and equipped to lead. Get ready to start building the only legacy that truly matters, your family. Welcome back to the Dadwork Podcast. This is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of Dadwork. And guys, it's not every day you get to sit down with someone who's actively trying to be canceled. This was a fun conversation, uh, pretty intense, pretty hardcore. I hope you guys get a lot out of this. My guest today is Will Noland. Will has taught English language and literature for 15 years, including nine years at Eton College in the UK. He was fired from Eton for a lecture on masculinity for a debating course, and he now teaches online. Will is Roman Catholic and is married with six children with their seventh due soon. He also competes in powerlifting. You can find him online, Noland Knows, K-N-O-W-L-A-N-D-K-N-O-W-S, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, everywhere else. That's where he's active. He's putting a ton of great stuff out. Today, we go deep, talking about how and why Will lost his job at the UK's prestigious all-boys school, Eton, for daring to defend patriarchy and masculinity, the importance of standing for the truth, even at great personal expense, how Will led his family through the chaos of being unemployed and losing his home right before Christmas with five kids and another on the way, why being a trustworthy man of integrity is key to a good marriage, a father's role and how Will guides his children to value both temperance and fortitude, what history teaches us about the collapse of civilizations and how to take a stand as the leader of your family, the fundamental feminist assault on men in the form of promiscuous sex and the damage it does to men, boys, and society, running a religious household despite not having been brought up in one, timeless books to share with your children, and so much more. Man, this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of interesting things we go into here, and it's so good to hear from someone who is actively taking that role to defend what he knows to be right. So guys, I hope this encourages you to continue to stand in the truth, even though it's not always expedient. Will is leading the charge on this, and I hope we can take a lot of inspiration from this. Now, guys, if you have been enjoying the Dadwork Podcast, if you have been blessed by this, if you have learned anything along the way that's made your life as a man, husband, and father better, would you please leave a rating and a review? Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen, head on over to the section where you leave a rating and review. Just give quick thoughts or star rating, whatever you need to do. Would really appreciate that because that is how we get this work into the hands of more men. And the more men who do this work, the more families are impacted, the more families are impacted, the better the world gets. Guys, the selfish part of this isn't that I want you to review my podcast, okay? The selfish part of this is I want to live in the world where more guys get this, more guys do the work, more guys have families that understand this and are led by good, strong men. So please leave a rating and review. And now, Enjoy this podcast with Will Noland. All right, back for another episode of the Dad Work Podcast. I'm pumped to have Will. I heard you on uh, my other friend, Will, Ran of Man Podcast. And uh, dude, I was just so pumped because you're just like out there in the battlefield being attacked by the woke mob. So welcome, man. Thanks for coming on. And uh, can you just maybe give us a backstory of Eaton and everything that came in from that? And we'll just go from there. Yeah, cool. I'll try and keep it quick because... A, it's still a live legal case, and B, it can get so involved. But basically, I've been teaching at the UK's leading all-boys school, one of the only remaining all-boys boarding schools. So this is like the bastion of tradition and masculinity. 
is produced around 20 prime ministers. And it's where parents send their kids to get the traditional education. And they've got a debate course where the older boys about to leave and go into the world, university or business, get exposed to all kinds of ideas that are designed to really challenge them and get them to think. And they're not told to sit there and take notes. They're told to disagree with what they're presented with in the lectures. So I was asked to give a lecture on the theme of identity. And I said, how about I talk about masculinity and say that what's currently called toxic masculinity by the American Psychological Association, stoicism, competitiveness, uh, dominance, etc., These are actually things that women have valued in men over the centuries. And if we look at this from the viewpoint of just secular evolutionary biology, women have selected men to be this way by sexual selection. And yet now we've been told it's toxic. It makes no sense. So they said, okay, that's pretty controversial. Let's do that. So it turned into a defense of patriarchy. And I'm Christian, Catholic, but I didn't bring any religious stuff into it. I just kept it all with secular academics. This was a 30-minute talk with about 40, 45 footnotes, and thought this is all well backed up. The kids can get their teeth into this. It's going to be a hard one to refute. Now, they weren't even allowed to hear it because a member of staff heard it first, pre-recorded, and said, no way, this is offensive. If the students were allowed to critically debate this, I would feel unsafe. I would feel unsafe for them to hear these ideas and say why they disagree with them. I just couldn't have the discussion anywhere around me. Now, when I heard this, I was thinking, okay, I've seen this play out in universities and schools throughout the world. I knew this was coming at some point here because it's one of the leading institutions and they always go for those. What am I going to do? Fine. The lecture at the college has canceled. I've got no control over that. But you've allowed me to have a YouTube channel and I've put the disclaimer on that you told me to add saying it's not college views. The kids can get educated in their free time away from this teacher who won't let the ideas get discussed in class. It's my job, my job description, to encourage broad-based debate and critical independent thought. Now, if I can't even do that on YouTube as someone working for a charity, aiming at providing public benefit, where can I do it? I can't do it in the classroom. You ban the lecture. So how about they do it in their own time? No, not even allowed on my private YouTube channel with the disclaimer that they said. So it was a real clampdown on any of these ideas that are contrary to the ones that they're normally told about. So it cut to the heart of my job. And then uh, it was a few back and forths. I said, what is wrong with the lecture that you don't like? Tell me which bit and I'll edit it out. Let's have a conversation. Nothing. Just the whole thing. We're not having that viewpoint whatsoever. And it's never been litigated before. It's the world first where a teacher has blocked curriculum content. The UK law under the Equality Act says that the content of the curriculum should be completely exempt. So you can teach whatever you like, no matter how controversial. But they think they found a loophole saying, aha, that only applies to students, not staff. Staff can control anything. And if it upsets them, we can't teach it. And to me, that's my job gone. I can't teach if that's the case, because what happens if someone thinks that a Shakespeare play is upsetting? Can't teach that. That's happened in some universities, Dickens novels being cancelled. So this was, to me, not a case of like getting fired. It was more like my job's already gone. It's disappeared from under my feet while I was in it. And it's not the one that I applied for. So when people say, was it worth losing your job over? Yes, because it had already gone. That's 
it's gross. That's all I can think is, can you imagine this person saying this is like what violence, this is violence against me. And it's insane because, you know, you read about this, you see this over the last number of years, people being canceled, you're not allowed to have these discussions, but to be in it and to watch this play out, did you learn anything about the process that I don't want to say they, the Royal, they, but did you learn anything about the process that I guess I'll just use the word they are going through to do this in these institutions that might help people see this coming or at least start like, I don't know what you do here, man. Like, what did you learn along the way here? Just as it relates to the the whole agenda. One of the things I learned is that you can have all the facts on your side and be able to counter all the accusations, but it doesn't matter because ultimately what you're dealing with is someone who just says, I feel upset. And they're using the law to say that merely feeling upset is all that you need to be able to make the complaint. So if you're going to counter it, it has to be done legally. And then you're thinking about, is it reasonable for the person to feel upset like this? And they say, does it pass the reasonable person test? But the problem is they are the judges of that. Now, if I said a a lecture attacking the patriarchy made me feel upset, do you think anyone's going to care? They wouldn't say that's reasonable. Doesn't work like that. Right. So it's asymmetrical and you just have to basically recognize that for what it is and accept the consequences. The the key thing I really took to heart was that there's no happy ever after just from staying quiet. Like once that is your job, if you go into that situation day after day, what, another 10, 15 years of biting my tongue, working in that same institution, watching it go downhill. That's not a good thing for a man to do and then to come home and have to look his wife and kids in the eyes like, what do you do for a living, daddy? Oh, I just watch things I disagree with and I never say anything because I'm so scared of losing that job. Yeah, that's sort of where I wanted to take this is in relation to the family. And I think the first thing is just what you said is actually taking a stand because everything that I see over the last number of years has come from men not taking a stand into what is right and being more comfortable with getting along to get along. Why is that? And what was different about you? Has this been always how you've thought? Is there some worldview that's allowed you to take a stand when most men would have crumbled? There's probably a couple of different factors to it. Uh, One is doing the job for the love of it and the passion and, and really believing in the place. When I got the job there, I was excited. It was an honor. This is somewhere that stands for a lot of what I believe in, at least on paper. And then when I saw that it was under attack from this ideology and how it was being changed from the inside by people in high positions, rolling out the agenda, that's how it all works. It's always top down. And you get lots of people grumbling about that and thinking, I don't recognize this place anymore. But because they acquiesce, because they just roll over and let the change happen, what are they expecting? You, you keep trying to compromise and weakness is just perceived as another reason to advance the attack. So you've got to stand strong while the threat is still relatively small. And the analogy I use is when you watch those nature documentaries and you see the wolf pack will start to approach the bison. And then if the bison just stands square on and eyeball the wolves, they're not going to charge bison. They'll get stomped to death. Um, But as soon as they turn and run, then even if it's just one or two wolves, they're like, we've got you now, you're afraid. And then that's it. There's not long left for the bison to live then. So you have to stand your ground. And like you say, it's weak men who aren't fulfilling their duties as protectors of 
whatever institutions they work in, but ultimately of their families. Because if these leading cultural institutions get taken over, then that has a knock-on effect of the society that your kids are going to be growing up in 10 years down the line or so. Yeah, exactly. And I want to sort of transition into the your own family life being impacted from this, because one day you go, hey, honey, I took a stand, which I assume she's going to respect big time because you're not going to be weak and that's attractive. And at the same time, you're like, I don't know what we're going to do. We don't have the income coming in anymore. How did you lead your family through that, making sure that your decision to stand firm was either supported or not or whatever? What did that calculus look like as you brought that back to the family? So as a Christian, I've got a biblical view of what marriage dynamics are supposed to be, which is the, is the man's role to lead and protect and take the stress off the woman so that she can have the, the freedom to flourish into her femininity at home. So one of my biggest goals throughout my life has been to make sure my wife doesn't have to work. And I think that if, uh, if you're a guy who's expecting your wife to work outside the home, then that's ultimately feminism. And you pay the price for that because the extra stress makes her disrespect you, you lose authority, etc. So I was really worried losing my income, thinking that I wouldn't be able to uphold that role. My biggest fear is my wife might have to work. Uh, would I ever be employed again if people see my CV and think this guy, he can be difficult if you cross him. Uh, he's made a stand here and people like that can be difficult to, to manage. That's the impression it gives, no matter how much uh, support I got from students and parents and old students of the college. And they signed a petition of over 3,000 people saying uh, they think Will's in the right. So the option was do it. And like in the Bible story, you basically take a a step out onto the waves and just hope that you're not going to sink because you're walking in truth and you're doing the right thing. So that was the way forward that I took and things have worked out okay. But what's the alternative to not doing that? Because this is what a lot of people try to rationalize. Let's say you're scared. You look at the waves and you don't want to take the step out. You don't want to take Christ's hand and trust that he's going to keep you afloat because you're walking on the path of truth. Well, the ship's going down anyway. You're going beneath the waves if you stay on board. If you take an honest look around yourself and see what the values are of the institution you're working in, what you're staying quiet about and the lies that you are allowing to seep into your soul and that resentment that will build and bleed over into your relationship with your wife and your kids as well, because you can't view yourself in the way that allows you to carry yourself with the self-respect and authority that the family needs to see in the father. So if you stay, it's bad. If you leave, it's frightening, but at least you're doing what you believe in and at least you're walking in truth. So that's the advice I'd give to anyone in a similar situation. And for what it's worth, just in case it encourages anybody listening, I wasn't doing eating for the money, but as a teaching job, it was well paid. It's the most prestigious teaching job in the UK, probably. And they provided accommodation for me, okay? So just before Christmas in 2020, I found out that my pay was stopping 
and I was losing my house. And I didn't own another house. This was it. And I've got five kids with a sixth kid on the way. So the temptation to stay in the golden cage as a little well-behaved pet getting a pat on the head for being a traitor to the heritage that I'm supposed to be defending was strong. Yeah. Like my kids said, my son's got a joke that he's never seen me cry apart from I shed one tear when I found out I got sacked. And he's like, what's the story? I had? Dad, one, he did one tear and then he was opening the laptop trying to figure out some way to get some money. <laughs> um, so they like, they like that story. And uh, I managed to, within a few months, uh, just self-employed, go over what my income was. And right, we couldn't get a, a house because the paperwork, self-employed, you can't get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. So we had to just see who would take us. We couldn't rent anywhere because we've got too many kids. We've got a big Mastiff, three cats. It's like, who wants that wear and tear on a rental property when you can get someone with two kids? So we were hanging out in a, a friend's two up, two down little cottage. He had that spare. So we just rented off him until I got enough paperwork to get our own place, which we're now in. And things have worked out well. And it's exciting being entrepreneur, self-employed and reaching more people than I was able to in the classroom. So looking back on it, it was the right decision. But at the time it was, it was scary. Praise God. That's so good. I'm so glad to see that everything worked out when you just lean into that trust and do the right thing. And that's so like, dude, that's everything. I think that so many men look for reasons not to do the right thing because they're looking for expediency. They're looking for something, even when it comes to serving their wives, do the right thing rather than what can I get out of this? And you just did the right thing and look what happened. It ended up working out and it wasn't easy, but I think it's a great lesson for everyone to stand in truth and to continue with that. And I'm curious if your wife trusted you along this way. Was she concerned? Did she have your back the whole time? What was that relationship like when this was happening? She's used to following me. um, And sometimes I I get it wrong. I'm relatively stubborn. And if you talk to a lot of guys who are more dominant personalities, being headstrong, sometimes you do need the edge taken off you a bit. So it's important to talk to your wife and have her as feedback not as someone to have the final say, but seek their counsel. So I've always got into the habit of listening to my wife because she's very wise about some things where I'll be a bit bullish. And talking to her about this one, I could see that she was 100% behind me uh, for the reasons I've outlined. Like she was thinking, okay, we stay. It sounds like financially it's comfortable, but this experience has shown us that at any time they could pull the trigger on it. Um, the employer's got a lot of power over you like that. Um, Whereas when you're self-employed, the market gives you more security. Yeah. I would rather trust my skills on the market than one particular employer uh, having this ideological view that I might clash with. Yeah. So she understood that there was no happy ever after from staying. And from what I've managed in the past up to that point, including having three kids under age three on very little money, but still managing to support her at home when I was in my early 20s. She knew I'd make something work. She had the trust in me. And she she knew what it would do to me to carry on and cuck working there. And she knows that's not me. So I got the thumbs up from her and then that was it. Let's go. Man, okay. So let's talk about like what it takes to get there in the first place. Because I was thinking about this the other day. 
so much of me being able to step out in success in my life has been because my wife is like loyal to a fault, like will have my back no matter what. And that's taken immense action for me to be a trustworthy man of integrity. And I wonder if you saw it the same way in your life where it's like, look, you're going to have my back. You're going to support me in this. You're going to be wise in the ways that I might need you to be wise. And I'm pretty sure you're going to have my back on this. What did it take or what has it taken in your marriage to earn that trust from her? One of the things I want to say first off is it's not about never making mistakes because part of being human is that due to original sin, our intellects, we get things wrong. Like we make mistakes. Uh, Our willpower is weakened as well. Not totally. Like it's not like we can just make mistakes, everything we do, but sometimes we get things wrong. And when you do admit it, show some humility and more crucially just learn from it as well so the idea is that you're showing you're not someone who's just going to keep banging his head against a brick wall trying the same thing making the same dumb mistakes if you've got the the prudence to learn from the past and use it to assess the future well then this is something that gives people confidence in you and the other is just explaining the the rationale for what your direction is like what are you following And for a Christian man, if you're committed to following God first, the Bible does not say that's going to be an easy path. A lot of it is saying this is going to be difficult. You are in the world, but you're not of it. And you have to accept the consequences of that. So if you've got the the dignity and authority that comes from being a, a follower first before you try to lead anybody, then I think that gives the overall mission or plan much more legitimacy and integrity. So the way the marriage is set up is is not just the two of you, but for Christians, it's God as well as the ultimate authority that the man submits to. And that gets rid of the idea that you're just a proud guy who wants things his own way the whole time. Otherwise, it can come across that way. Like, whatever I say goes. No, it's I'm trying to serve the Lord, and I'm also seeking your counsel in this. But because of the way families work, and in fact, any society, there has to be some kind of authority figure. And that's the man's role. And yes, this also comes with a lot of responsibility and pressure. But that's an honor to take on so that it doesn't have to fall on your shoulders. Yeah, well said. I appreciate that a lot because that's, um, I think it's like, a, it's a glorious burden. And the amount of dads that I work with and the amount of dads I talk to is we feel the burden and yet we would never dream of putting it down. And that's because we reprieve our wives of needing to carry that burden of leadership, of stress, of all of that. And that benefits us because it gets uh, it gets to our core of who we are and what we're designed to do. But it also benefits her so greatly that she can, like you said earlier, flourish in the space that you provided by carrying that. And as a dad, I'm going, okay, like I'm carrying the family burden and I want to start unloading some of that burden onto my sons. So I've got three sons. I've got another child on the way. Not sure, boy or girl. I mean, I'll have to ask the kindergarten teacher in five years from now what the gender is. Uh, but uh, I'm curious. You've got six, almost seven kids. Is that right? Yeah, okay. seven coming in a few months. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, man. That's so good. I'm so excited for that. And uh, I'm mm-hmm. curious what you think your role as a dad is, because I'd love to get into a little bit of parenting from your perspective, from this grounded sort of masculine perspective. Um, what do you take as being your role and how has fatherhood looked for you? Well, how about I start with what I was saying in the lecture that I got sacked for? Not mentioning anything to do with Christian revelation, but just keeping it on like 
the ground level where most of these secular kids can relate. I talked about how in Professor David Gilmore's book, given a cross-cultural study of manhood, it's called Manhood in the Making. He said there are three moral injunctions, procreate, protect, and provide. And the role that's least shared is protect because women can also procreate and they do a fair bit of providing as well in hunter-gatherer societies, roots, berries, and things closer to home generally because they have to have the babies breastfeeding on them, whereas men tend to do the hunting and things that are further afield. But the protecting, no country ever in history has ever conscripted women into frontline combat because they're precious. We don't want too many women dying. So as a man, the idea is that you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for your family to protect them. And in modern day society, some guys find that hard to understand because how many of us are being called to uh, put ourselves on the line physically to protect our family from tigers or whatever it might be, woolly mammoths coming to rampage through the campsite or a neighboring tribe. Now, the the long peace since World War II, 1945, I think has made people get a bit cocky and human history is mostly war punctuated by brief periods of peace and we've forgotten that. So in recent decades, guys would have been very aware of the, the call to arms being a thing that might come for them in their lives. So let's not forget that. But the protector role is also moral too and spiritual. So in a way, me being willing to go through what I did in my job and sacrifice all of that and put myself under extra hardship was because I was doing something I believe was important for my family, for the wider community of the school as well. And even beyond that, the knock-on effect in principle for other teachers as well and other educational institutions because if this has never been litigated before and they're trying to do it someone has to stand against it and i know lots of people who probably wouldn't but wish somebody would and happens to be me and it's come for me and i'm up for it so let's go that was my response to it so that's part of the protector role and it's amazing how when you look at that secular perspective on things and you compare it to what the bible says about marriage being like Christ and the church and how Christ is the ultimate example of bleeding for everyone, self-sacrifice. Unlike any other human being, he chose to be born. And on the cross, he refused pain relief. So this is taking it all the way. So you experience every last drop of suffering voluntarily. So that's the apex of masculinity, the, the supreme example of protector even people for people who don't, strictly speaking, deserve it. So if that's what we have to look up to and we need our, our prayers and we need to get help to take it to that level. But every man can understand on the, the basic level of just natural law in even pagan societies, it's a man's duty to, to protect. And the, the etymology of that word, word is literally like to, to throw in front of. So your, your body's like a, a shield. And you need to extend that metaphorically to, to all areas. This is why I say that if you look at the Muslim mothers in the UK, especially out in the streets protesting the sex education classes, 
that they don't like to see in the primary schools that their kids go to. Some of those Muslim mums understand masculinity better than some Christian fathers who just shrug it off and think, oh, well, if the school's going to teach that, what are we really going to do about it? Whereas the Muslim mums are there in the streets with the placards saying, you're not teaching my kids this, kids coming out of the class, out of the school, and we're also going to make a fuss to local authorities too. So I think uh, there's a lot to be learned there about why protection isn't just physical and men feeling emasculated because they haven't got to use their muscles much in their daily jobs, things like that. Everyone's behind the screen just typing away. No, you're called to it in all kinds of ways. Man. Okay. So the basis of the fatherhood piece then is this protector role and it's protecting physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And how is that, I guess, being lived out beyond, and maybe this is just it. Is it just that you are showing them the way, like you are the template for that in their lives that literally keeps them specifically and individually uh, safe but also being like, oh, this is what a man looks like. This is who, for your sons, I need you to be. And for your daughters, this is who I need you to be looking up to marry. Is that part of the equation for you? In terms of modeling the kind of behavior what you want, if you're giving your wife the opportunity to be a stay-at-home mother and get in the freedom and the dignity that comes with that to be truly feminine, and you're showing your daughters through that, that motherhood is valuable. That's really important. If you were instead expecting your wife to go out and work outside the home, and this is downplaying the maternal role, downplaying femininity and saying real success is in the boardroom as a woman, that sends a message to your daughters. So there's that part to it. If you were modeling what self-sacrificial masculinity looks like to your sons and giving them something to aspire to and showing them how you you treat your wife and inspiring this respect for the nobility of womanhood then that's another part of the message so you can address both daughters and sons with it and then in terms of day-to-day duties uh as, as a christian i believe that the, the father's um, highest role ultimately is trying to get his family to heaven and he, he gets himself to heaven by achieving that. So your duties of moral and religious instruction, education are right at the top. And they're more important than how much money you make. So your job is just something you do to provide for your family. But your real work starts afterwards. You want to have a job that's in contributing to society in a valuable way. And God gives people different gifts to do that. So I've always been good at reading books and explaining them to people and getting them interested in them and asking the right questions to get conversations going. And that's why I got to the top in teaching profession. Um, my brothers are really good at like things like welding and practical skills, uh, or one of them is really good at art. So they use those skills to benefit people as well. So it doesn't matter what you're good at, just use it to benefit other people and then get rewarded for that. But the main thing is that after your work day is done, that's when your work starts properly with your own kids and with your wife. That's the reason why you work for them. The work isn't the goal in itself. It's not the key to your identity. It's not some kind of yardstick where you measure yourself against other men. All of those achievements, whether it's uh, financial or particular accolades, 
these are all worldly things that you need to stay relatively detached from because in the final analysis, it's not going to count uh, when you are judged. Yeah, I like that. Thank you for sharing that, man. What are some of these specifics that you are hoping to teach your, your sons, especially, um, because I, when I look at your, your work on Instagram, like I've watched your, um, your presentation that was, you know, apparently too scary and dangerous to, to show the kids a number of times. And like, dude, it, it fires me up because it's so good and it's so obviously true. And I wanted to just frame, like, rather than just say, Hey, what about this? What about this? I'm curious if any of the things that you're posting are like specific things that you're hoping to instill in your sons or teach them about the world. Yeah, that's a good question. So from what I've said about self-sacrifice already, you can probably guess that that's something I think is really important. So I think dads should be trying to give boys, young boys, the opportunity to practice self-sacrifice in small ways, whether it's just giving up something they might really want, like a toy that they don't want to share or an extra serving of dessert or something and let a sibling have it large families are good for this because you learn about not putting yourself first. And then also, if you look at how a lot of men get misled nowadays, it's to do with the very things that St. Thomas Aquinas warned about with effeminacy, which is allowing either pleasure to throw you off course from doing the right thing, you get distracted by pleasure, or the other form is you get terrified by pain you get put off the right course because it's too painful for you so being able to resist pleasure which is temperance and being able to withstand pain and endure it which is fortitude these i think are things that so many men in their early 20s maybe even older nowadays would have benefited from having a bit more of when they were growing up now i don't really get too philosophical or theological with it with my son he's only 13 but we do things like in the gym sometimes if he's doing some training with me and he's a bit tired um or doesn't really feel like doing it i'll say okay fine i'm not going to force you to do it you don't have to but you know you won't get any results that way and this is how things are outside the gym as well you don't always feel like doing it and it makes me laugh because one time he would just sat there and watched me do my workout and he said dad you must love being able to go to bed after or lifting all these weights and just relax, not have to lift any. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's nice to rest afterwards, but it's only nice to rest because I've earned it and I've done the work. And then sometimes I'll say things like that and he won't carry on with the workout and I don't make him. But then later on it will sink in and you'll see he'll come back. And he's understood it. And the next slump of a mood he'll get in, he'll push through it. So little things like that, do it delicately, but do it consistently and let them see you teaching by example. And this all adds up. Now, when it comes to the resisting pleasure stuff, I don't go nuts with it, like, you know, banning uh, all sweets and things from the house. But I'll, I'll make a point if a pack of biscuits or some sweets goes too quickly and just say, like, that went, it went quite fast, didn't it? Like, why, why did you eat so many? Uh, so quickly and if I had 10 bags there would you have just carried on going until someone stopped you how many do you think is okay how many did you want and then that would just give him a little mental check and uh, we'll have a few jokes about you know who who wants to grow up to be a biscuit monster 
you can't just do things that you feel like doing the entire time, just like you can't avoid things that you don't feel like doing the entire time because both can lead to disaster. So there's small lessons that can be taught before you get into the big explanations of why it's really important because you can see where that leads. Like when you're 18, 19, what happens if you just want to have sex the entire time um, before marriage, which is the way that the radicals got a hold of men in the sexual revolution, given the promise of easy pleasure. And nothing has emasculated men more than that. And this is a an angle on feminism that I rile people up with a bit because the truth hurts that promiscuity or fornication is feminism. And a lot of guys who are buying into that so-called red pill mindset where they call it ejaculate and evacuate and just see women as tools for their own pleasure. That has been taken further in the ghetto than anywhere else. And it's emasculated men more there than they have been anywhere else because the state has to step in to the provider role that previously was the thing that dignified and ennobled men. So this is the irony. What people are taking on as alpha is actually a weapon that was deliberately pointed at men to take away their authority. And people have been too stupid to recognize it because it feels good while you're doing it. Man. Yeah. Those are such far reaching consequences because in, in the moment I want to teach these same lessons too. It's like, you know, self-control basically on both sides. And yet, like you said, it's like 18, 19 years old. If they don't come up with that base of understanding the small things, then it's so easy to just slip into it and like, oh, who cares? It's just the world today. It's just what we do. Um, are there other things like that? Like I imagine pornography and stuff like that is, I think it's terrible, obviously. Um, but are there other things that are maybe insidiously creeping into the culture and acceptance by men that are slowly degrading their masculinity in the same sort of way? Um, I don't know if that's too sort of broad of a question, but other things like that that societally, society calls acceptable that we need to be called out on. I think parents can explain that just because something is socially acceptable doesn't mean it's morally acceptable. And there's a lot to be done here with if your kids go to school. My kids have had a mixture of school and homeschool, depending on where we've been in the country and what's been on offer. I've found that small rural schools tend to be better options than the bigger ones. Um, but if there's something like, for example, uh, the idea that you have to affirm people who identify as trans, for example, because if you don't, you might hurt their feelings. I think this is a, a, a subtle form of emasculating messaging to men because it's asking them to assent to a lie which is that there's such a thing as trans people but there aren't there's just men and there's women and you can get men who mistakenly identify as women but they're still men it doesn't make them a different kind of person called a trans person so once they've accepted this idea that you embrace falsehood just because at least in the short term it seems like you're going to get on with everybody better that's one of the ways in which you produce after five, 10 years of doing it in your day-to-day -day life with not just acquaintances, but sometimes even like close friends and family. That's how you produce the kind of guys who don't really take a stand on anything because they've never cultivated courage and they've never understood that 
speaking truth is a form of loving the person you are talking to because love isn't just a wishy-washy feeling it's about doing what is objectively good for the other person and sometimes that involves correcting them now let me give you a husband and wife example to make it a bit clearer if your wife's fat you should tell her if you love her and have the difficult conversation just saying look I, you might not have noticed it or maybe you have but you're hiding from it over the last four or five months you put on a lot of weight um are you feeling more depressed? Is it comfort eating or something? Is is bad for your health? And it makes me find you less attractive. I don't want that for you or for me. So this might hurt to have to talk, but we need to do something about it. Like that's good male leadership because if you let her carry on putting on a couple of pounds a month here and there, and then that carries on for five years, it's going to hurt her heart and her internal organs and shorten her life. And she's not going to be there for your kids. But some guys will be terrified to have that conversation because they think they're being mean. So you have to accept that part of your, your duty as a, as a man is to have these difficult conversations. And as a boy, teenage boy, surrounded by all these ideas in schools that you're supposed to accept to be a nice person, you have to learn to speak your mind. Yeah. How much of this cultural talk do you have with your son? Because what we've tried to do is like just have the conversations like our, our kids are 10, 8, and 3. Um, but with the older ones, it's kind of like they just know that this is where we stand. And they just know that we're optimizing for truth. And they just know we're optimizing to row the family boat toward God. And I think it's good to have these conversations at an early age. And I'm curious what you think about that if you're sort of bringing him into the cultural milieu as you go about this. So I think if possible, don't have the conversations. But the problem is it's often uh, – impossible to avoid having them because they come for your kids outside the home and you have to correct the faulty information so i would like to be able to say that until puberty don't talk about sex like why bother just the kids let them be innocent don't talk about homosexuality don't talk about any of these perversions don't talk about delusions like transgenderism they don't need that at all you can just enjoy playing together and then you can read some Bible stories. You can read some of the traditional literature, sports, sunshine, exercise, and then just love and laughter and happiness, how childhood should be. But what is it now? The average age of first exposure to porn is around 10, 11, sometimes even younger than that, like seven. There's dark forces out there that are going to come and get your kids sooner than you would like them to so you need to arm them against that and sometimes this can mean rather than being on the back foot trying to get in there first and give some preventative education so their minds are a bit stronger when they are assaulted so my kids will roll their eyes a bit and come and tell me oh we've heard this from so and so thinks that she's a lesbian uh that's ridiculous isn't it dad um, and then we'll talk about the evidence showing that X gays outnumber gays and how no one talks about this in schools and how so many people have just passed through it as a phase. And it's more common than not to do that and how God doesn't make anybody gay. And even from the secular term of biology, like what is sex for procreation? Can homosexuals reproduce? No, they can't. Um, so we, we, we get into some of the reasons behind it. And it's younger than I would like to. But if you don't do it, then you're not 
providing that protector role that you should be doing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting. I I, I wasn't even. Um, I mean, we haven't gone down the sex route yet for similar reasons, like what you're saying. And yet, I saw. Uh, the kindergarten classrooms at the school next to us, we're playing in the park. We homeschool our kids for the first time this year. Uh, and there's like the, whatever they're called, the rainbow flag stickers on the kindergarten rooms. And it's like, you're, you're being forced to have these conversations earlier and earlier. And yeah. And anyway, I was just curious how you guys did it because it's, it's a (laughs) constantly moving target that unfortunately we got to hit, uh, properly. Uh, I do want to make sure we've got time because I'm just like personally super interested in, a lot of the stuff you're posting is like, you know, this is what happened to Rome. Rome went the way of the dodos. You know, like we're on this track, 2060, America's done. And I'm like, dude, like I, I agree. I can't disagree because it's fact. And yet I'm always going like, well, and then what? Like, are we supposed to do anything about this? Or like, what is your view on the, like, can we actually do anything? Or is it just like, let's be aware and make the most of it? What, where do you fall on the, the action side of it? Yeah, so you, there's both sides to it, isn't there? There's the you can fall into the the black pill view of it, which is everything's going to fall apart around us, and we observe the same patterns of behaviour that there were in falling Rome and in all other kinds of societies that went this way. But the Christians and Jews, for example, in Rome, who outlasted it and rose from the ashes, they resisted the tide of mainly sexual degeneracy that was threatening to sweep them away, and they stood strong against it and ended up as the only fertile communities. And they showed that even though with all that happening around them, it's possible to still live a good life in a degenerate wider culture. So that saying that hard times make strong men, strong times, strong men make easy times, easy times make soft men, etc. You shouldn't fall into that as some kind of deterministic cycle and think that there's nothing you can do about it because you are the leader of your own family and you can live the way that you think is right by resisting what's wrong around you. And God will give you the help to do that. And you've still got the responsibility to carry out Christ's commandments. Or if you're not Christian, you've still got the responsibility to uphold the the natural moral law that everybody knows about, even without the Bible, although the Bible is the best clarification and development of it. So there's no need to get pessimistic thinking you can't achieve anything. Life's still a wonderful thing. And you can make the most of it. So I don't think that people should look at any of these cycles of decline in societies that look very similar to what we're going through now and think it somehow means that everything is meaningless. In fact, the the main problem with those societies, the main symptom of decline is people losing confidence and not wanting to have children. And then the declining fertility rate is in a way like a feedback loop. So population dwindles, often some kind of neighboring culture will see this and think, right, weakness, we're going to attack, and then they get overtaken and the stronger culture flourishes instead. People think that's happening in the West now with Islam, for example, generally higher birth rates than in the West, and they're a bit more aggressive and confident because of their religious faith. 
Now, what does the Christian view of history have to say about this? Well, we know, like it or not, that the biblical view of history isn't some kind of never-ending cycle. It ends in apocalypse. So things do just slowly get worse and worse until the apocalypse. So the lights are slowly going out one by one. And this is why every man is ultimately in the same situation that the Spartans were, King Leonidas with the Persian arrows blotting out the sun. And it's like, that's right. He's fighting the shade. That's it. And for some people, this will look like, I've forgotten his name now. Is it Boromir? Um, in Lord of the Rings, where he gives enough time for the hobbits to escape. And then, you know, that scene where the arrows come in again and again into his chest and then the orc just comes up to him and then just, that's it now. Okay, you, you've sacrificed yourself. Uh, there's dignity in that. There's dignity in going down fighting. And the Christian twist on this, the Christian twist is that you were ultimately made for the resurrection. So we know that there's victory in the end, but it comes at the cost of great sacrifice and endurance. And you have to live through the darkness in that ultimate light. You've got that pagan perspective on things like a man dies on his feet. But by the way, because of Christ, he doesn't die. He rises again. And everything you do is for that greater glory. So if I wasn't a Christian, I would still be pumped up about the idea of dying on my feet. But the fact that I'm a Christian means that death is transcended and the apocalyptic vision of history, I mean, given the reality of sin and the devil and fallen human nature, I'm not sure how it was ever going to end otherwise. Uh, it's the, the, the leftist liberal view of reality that we are perfectible and human nature is basically really good. And at some point we're going to create heaven on earth. That has always historically proven to be a completely retarded disaster. Like the, the, the most bloody political realities have always come from the most bloodless political philosophies. Like we're all nice. We can get together and we'll create a utopia. That's Marxism in a nutshell. We'll make the perfect society by getting rid of all these corrupt institutions. And what do you get? A hundred million people murdered roughly. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's really good, man. Cause like I, I get in that too. I'm like, well, yeah, it's obviously going down. Like, pff, duh. And then it's like, oh man, well, I'm I'm so new in the faith as well that I'm finding these like, okay, I'm like my buddy was talking this morning about Psalm 91, like just resting in his shadow. It's like, okay, I'm going to be good. And I have a duty to my family and to society and to Christ to keep pushing forward. And I think that's maybe all I needed because I'm, I'm seeing this and there's nothing on the back end. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what he thinks about this. So I, I appreciate the the clarification on that. And I know we've got like, I don't know, nine minutes or something. So I want to maybe just hit like a couple of, of, of touch points. Um, one of which, I don't know if you've got like a quick answer to this. We could just take the whole rest of the time. Like if you could just wave a magic wand and every Western man could get like one attribute or one thing to turn back the tide, is there something that you wish for men to understand or to have or to, I don't know, man, like just be sunk in with? Is there a way that we could just make things great? So I would take it back to the main way in which Western men were attacked in the first place, which is encouragement of fornication, so sex before marriage, 
and also contraception. Now, why were those two things weaponized against men in the sexual revolution? If you look at what the feminists actually wrote about that, it's because they thought that promoting promiscuity was going to be the best way to undermine the family and therefore male authority within it. So God doesn't give men as single guys authority over just random women walking down the street. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Some of the red pill bachelor types talking about male authority have got it the wrong way around within the society of the family, just like the, the captain of a football team, for example, has authority within that team to call the plays and to get everyone working together to win the game. But when the game's over and he just walks down the street expecting to have authority over random guys who aren't on his team, no, that's not how it works. So the male authority is within the context of the family specifically. And by giving men sex before marriage and without family, you're basically taking what should have been that arduous path of like transformation and rite of passage and having to earn those things and move from being a a boy to a man, move from just being a consumer to a provider. You're giving them what should have been their biggest motivation. And let's be honest, sex is the thing that motivates most men. You're giving it to them early when they haven't earned it. And you're also saying they're having it irresponsibly. Because the whole point of contraception is you're saying, I just want this to be about my pleasure. I don't want any responsibilities to come with it. But with no responsibilities, you also get no real authority either. Like at that point, you're just seeing women as uh, a toy, friction for fun, and you're disconnecting sex from family. So it's no surprise that men have ended up in the mess they're in because of that. Now, if more men had wives had kids then what would we see one thing you'd see is that they've got more skin in the game like they care more and again not from a religious perspective you look at what marriage does to a man's earnings boosts it most studies say by around 15 to 20 percent because they're not just working for themselves anymore they take life more seriously overall And you can talk to many guys about how becoming a father made them wake up, change their habits. Of course it did. This is the ultimate rite of passage because now things matter. It's not you just playing video games or messing around, smoking weed and trying to have sex the whole time with women you don't care about. That's no way for a man to live. That's how a teenage boy thinks it's fun to live because he's dumb and doesn't understand things properly. But a man has to wake up from that. But sadly, too many guys don't. And the attack plan was basically keep them in that state of arrested development as Peter Pan's being pacified with porn until they are sadly sometimes in their 40s. Man, that's convicting stuff. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I think that what would be most useful now if you've got like, man... I'm going to need to do a part two, man. I'm so interested in a lot of the stuff you're saying here. Uh, do you want to touch on raising a religious household despite not having been brought one up in one yourself or reading program for kids? Which one of those is best for five minutes? I could go on a little bit longer than five minutes if you can. Yeah, I'm good. Yep. All right. 
So the first one was religious household, despite not having had religious upbringing myself. So when I was in my early 20s, I had pretty similar worldview to most people my age in terms of what it looked like practically, although I probably had some more sophisticated rationalizations for it than the average person just from what I'd read at the time. So I was really into this Nietzschean worldview where it's all about uh, power and like the strongest survive and morality isn't really anything objective and your perspective on things is relativistic and it's hard to pin down what truth is, perhaps even impossible. So you get this like uh, fantasy vision, uh, a teenager's fantasy vision of what a strong man looks like. Some kind of mixture of uh, Conan the Barbarian and various like Marvel action figures, Captain America, that kind of stuff, a caricature of masculinity. And what's interesting with that is that so much of it comes from Nietzsche's idea of the Superman and you've got no real sense of connection to family, duty and responsibility. Like Nietzsche hardly writes about women or children at all. Um, like what does a Superman do all day? Just sit on a mountain somewhere being super. Uh, we're never really told what his life looks like. So it was difficult for me uh, in my early 20s when I first had kids to like fully understand how to mesh those ideas that sounded cool when I read about them in books with the reality of day-to-day life, uh, learning to love my wife properly and my kids as well, and me not being the center of everything. And that slowly led me to the, the Christian view of things. And then understanding how much of the masculine tradition in Christianity has been downplayed and hasn't been properly articulated to my generation, I'm 37, and probably even more so to guys a bit younger than me. I thought Jesus seemed like some kind of wet, hippie figure with nothing important to tell men. Me too. And the arguments for God, I mean, they, they can all be dismissed as being unscientific, right? And then you've got evolution. And then I started to look into what the roots of some of these misconceptions are. And you look at the arguments of people like the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, etc., And they haven't addressed the arguments for theism at their strongest. Often it looks like they have become atheists at about age 13 and never bothered looking at religious uh, religion past that point and kept a 13 year old objections to it. So that made me lose a lot of respect for my own viewpoints to the extent that it overlapped with those. And then reading more deeply in uh, philosophy as well, and then looking at the the case for the resurrection and the empty tomb, and just thinking, what do I have to believe instead of Christianity? And then you start to get uh, into things like uh, infinite, empirically undetectable multiverses, uh, which is the way the scientists will try to take you uh, when they feel like the argument from cosmic fine-tuning, for example, is making them feel uncomfortable. So you can see that actually they've got no problem with believing things that aren't empirically detectable, even though they say that that's the reason they don't believe in God. Uh, Same with the origins of life, for example. 
oh, it must have floated here from another planet on spores from alien um, plants or something, or maybe aliens introduced it. So I just kept seeing all these empirically undetectable things that weren't scientific uh, being used to bolster this supposedly hardline empirical worldview. And that was interesting for me at the time as a young man, like, oh, so you guys do believe lots of things that uh, science in principle uh, can't support. But that's really interesting because you're being inconsistent and I've lost respect for you over that. And then looking into some of the traditional philosophical arguments for God, understanding them better, that cleared away a lot of the dead wood um, in my mind that was holding me back from taking Christianity seriously. And then it was like, I've messed up as a as a father because my main duty was supposed to be about teaching this to my kids. And I feel so bad that we weren't doing like daily Bible reading and I wasn't making them do their prayers in the morning, in the evening. I've lost so much time. Uh, God will be really angry with me. And then you can get into wishing that you can turn back the clock, but there's no point in doing that because you can't. Uh, what you can do is just learn from it and then repent and then each day just try and do better and accept that this is just a part of human frailty and and have pity on kids who are in the same situation as well and try and do what you can to help them. So I think people in that situation can feel very overwhelmed. There's too much to do. But really, a lot of fatherhood and especially religious instruction is about getting a few things that are big done consistently over a long period of time. So it's like when you go into the gym, as long as you're getting pretty decent workouts in most of the time over a long enough period of time, you're going to get results, Like even if you go through bad patches. So for, for dad struggling with this, I would have something like, uh, daily family prayer even if it's only a few minutes try and do it morning and evening and then get to church on Sundays and then try and do a little bit of scripture as well if you can't manage it every day at least do it a few times a week and then you're just making space for something and showing it's important and then over time it will all start to like trickle into the kids minds there's that image isn't there that the Jesuits used to use for teaching if you get a bottle with a narrow neck and you try and pour loads of water in at once, most of it will spill. But if you do it one drop at a time, then you'll eventually get it all in. So little and often consistently is the way to get this stuff done. And um, like, be honest about the fact that you you get things wrong sometimes and you struggle with things. Like maybe you might snap and get really stressed sometimes and then speak too harshly to somebody and just say, yeah, that was um, my mistake. And then if you're Catholic, you're going to confession, same as they are as well, and admitting fault. That I think that's really important. Some guys think that if they admit fault, it's a, a sign of weakness, but actually it's just being realistic and it's a sign of strength. So that's important to model to kids. And then another big part is you're going to have to control TV and social media and like the entertainment diet of the family and kids, because they are always going to be getting catechized or, or taught some kind of moral. And I don't think there actually are any non-spiritual worldviews. So I'm going to say even like liberalism, uh, although it pretends to be non-religious, 
it's actually just a idolatry of the self and, and sex that it's a religion of those things uh, a false idolatrous worship of of sex and the the ego your kids are going to be learning that religion um if you just do nothing that's the default that will come at them so you you have to fight back against it and do a little bit of your own thing in the home and just like you know uh, a military general might put up extra defenses around some kind of encampment or castle to stop people making encroachments behind his lines smartphone screen control apps block tv channels you know what the music videos are going to be promoting twerking and promiscuity all the rest of it and immodest dress and you don't want to fill kids minds with that so take the appropriate action and then think about books they're going to be reading as well music they're listening to Plato's got a great point about music having a way of like worming its way into the soul. So music because of the rhythms and the aesthetic appeal of it is particularly powerful. So I think some music without lyrics can be important. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are all very similar to what we've come up with as well. And especially I was going through the same thing. Like how do I make up for lost time? And it's like, well, no, you don't, man. Like you, you've been put here by God, for this reason, at this time, for these kids, and it's like, do your best. Make this a reality in your life. Show them, again, through the leadership of your actions that it's real, and then go through, like you said, we've got you know scripture reading, we've got church, we've got all these things, and then making it real also includes ownership. I think ownership is like such a, we've touched on this a number of times, so I won't go into it, but like it's such an important part of leading because they have to be able to trust that you know where your limits are. Um, Anyway, I, you probably have to go, but if you don't, I'd love to hear about your reading program for kids. Uh, otherwise, well, I'll just text you about it or something. Uh, it, briefly, I would say most people should start with the like, Greek myths and Norse myths. Those are really important stories that, as C.S. Lewis said, are like good dreams of the Christian revelation to come. So the kids should have a strong grounding in all the classic pagan myths my son in particular really loved Norse myths. So we used to read that together when he was like eight, nine. And some of the Viking adventure stories. Uh, there's one by uh, Bengtsson uh, called The Long Ships, that his favorite. And uh, then like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings as well. I think things like Harry Potter and some of the uh, like vampire romance fantasy novels for teenage girls, most of those should be avoided. Uh, I think that some of them have got some fairly uh, subversive sexual messaging in. So be suspicious of anything that's being really heavily marketed and is really popular and stick with some of the older classics, something like uh, Little Women, Black Beauty. The older childhood classics, I think, are really good for girls to read especially. And then reading bits of the Bible with the kids as well as a family and you reading it aloud, I think that's really important too. Now, as they get older, I think some knowledge of history as well as just the mythology is really good. So learning about Greece and Rome and whatever country you actually live in as well, connect them to the roots of that. Like what are some of the big wars that people have fought in to defend it? 
and uphold its traditions? And what are some of the different kings, queens, some of the major political disturbances? Uh, not many schools teach this anymore because they're ashamed of it. So given that you are your child's main educator, you have to be aware of that and fill in the gaps. Yeah, excellent. Well said. And we, yeah, we've gone through a number of those. Um, we're reading, I don't know, we're reading so much. I'm, I'm wanting to get them into endurance next um, with Shackleton and just show the leadership and that, man, the, the Bible, it stays there the whole time. They rescue it. It's beautiful. Anyway, man, I don't want to keep you anymore. I know it's late there. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, where can guys find you if they want to learn more? I don't know what you're doing exactly, but please let us know. Yeah, I'm on YouTube, Nolan Knows, and mixture of videos. I've got a podcast with some other Catholic guys called C-Mask, Christian Masculinity, which is on Fridays at 2.30 p.m. American time EST. And you can get me on Substack where there's some more academic stuff, essays, and a few podcasts as well with various academics around the world talking on topics that I'm interested in. And you can get me on Twitter and Instagram, both Nolan knows there. And uh, even TikTok as well, although I seem to get banned on there a lot. <laughs> I don't know how that yeah, I'm surprised you're still on all the other platforms, man. It's crazy. Uh, well, thanks yeah. for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, really just grateful for the fact that you're the guy stepping up and taking the burden for all of us. Uh, and I would just hope that everyone's inspired by that. So, man, thank you very much for being here. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Dad Work Podcast. That's it for this episode. But if you would like to stay in touch between weekly episodes, why don't you go over to Instagram and follow me there? Because I drop a number of things throughout the week that are related to what we talk about on this podcast, but usually go a little bit deeper, provide some tips. You can find me on Instagram at dadwork.curt. That's D-A-D-W-O-R-K dot C-U-R-T. And please, if you have been getting something out of this podcast, if it has touched you, if it has improved your marriage, your parenting, or your life, would you please leave a quick review on Apple or Spotify? Leave a rating. If you have a few extra seconds, leave a quick review. That's the best way that we can get this work in the hands of more fathers. And I truly believe that we change the world one father at a time because each father that parents better, that loves better, raises children who do the same. And in just a couple of generations, I feel like we could be living in a world much better than the one we live in today. Your review will help along that path. And I thank you so much for being here to listen. Until next week, we'll see you then.